0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are coming to you live from Self Isolation <laughs> true, <It's real, laughs> which we have both just entered. <laughs> and we will be bringing you what I think will be an extra long discussion Probably. of chapters 17 to 24. Of northanger abbey where we are also joined by our friend helena kelly but first lauren wants to bang on about gothic literature and anne radcliffe which i guess is useful context for the rest of this episode and generally the read-along but
1: there are so many notes there are well i've just been in self-isolation with all of my female gothic texts and i'm just writing notes not paying attention to anything else, just writing notes. (laughs) So I have so much to say on all of this. I have so many notes, you guys. Um, But first, do we need to define Gothic literature again? I know we've done two episodes on this. Uh, You can go ahead and look back to season one, episode 13 on Northanger Abbey versus Jane Eyre, although I am really scared to listen to that episode. It might be terrible. You could also listen to our episode last season with Dr. Amber on Charlotte Bronte and gothic literature. That one very useful. But in case you need a quick refresher, Hannah, I know you're the expert on this. Why don't you tell the fine folks at home what gothic fiction is really about? I am
0: known for my uh, insight into gothic fiction. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you, Lauren, that gothic literature combines horror and romance and contains elements of the supernatural, tyrannical male figures, women in distress, an atmosphere of suspense, visions, omens, dark doubles, and of course, a decaying mansion castle or an abbey. All right, great, great
1: stuff. You You are welcome. You just came (laughs) up with that right off the top of your head. Just, it was right here all (laughs) along. So what I'm particularly interested in is the female gothic, in quotes. Um, that is a term coined by Ellen Moyers, who wrote my favorite book of all time, just called Literary Women. Please buy this book; it's fantastic. It starts with a a letter from Harriet Beecher Stowe about sinks that makes me cry. <laughs> um, so the female gothic is essentially how women women writers. Are using these gothic elements or tropes to discuss female issues and anxieties. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I get it. Cool. Well, I'm the
0: expert. So obviously, so you, I knew, to stand. you knew this. Yeah, obviously.
1: <laughs> so, okay. Let's take this all the way back to the woman who is hailed as the mother of gothic fiction. That would be Anne Radcliffe. I have wanted to cover Anne Radcliffe on the show for some time, but let me tell you it's insanely difficult to get an expert. I've even tried to ambush some of our very distinguished academics and gothic experts with, like, Radcliffe questions just off the cuff, out of nowhere, and they have literally backed out of the room screaming as if, like, they were a heroine in a gothic novel. So I've really gotten nowhere on that, and if you are a true Radcliffe expert, please slide into my DMs. Anyway, I think this is all because... Anne is just like a big ass mystery to all of us. So all of our takes on Anne could potentially be completely wrong. <laughs> um, she really only leaves behind like her work, her books. Like we don't have a ton of letters. We got no diary. We don't really know like who she was or what her real motivations for writing were. So that's, that's difficult. Um, after her death, I find this interesting. Uh, The poet Christina Rossetti actually set out to write a biography on Radcliffe, but had to just like give up due to lack of material. And off the top of my head, I cannot remember what she said to her editor, but it was something along the lines of like, I'm just dismayed and I've got to dismiss it. Like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. (laughs) She really wanted to, though. She really loved Radcliffe. By the way, like everyone loved Radcliffe. All the writers, I feel like that we've talked about on this show. Recently, I found myself putting together the bits and pieces that we do have of Anne Radcliffe's life together, and it made me start to think about Northanger Abbey in a new way, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this read-along this year. So here are a few things about Anne Radcliffe. Um, First up, Anne was born on July 9th, 1764. She's a cancer, like me. Um, Just for a quick comparison to Austin was born in 1775. So Radcliffe's not that much older than her. She was originally from London, but her parents moved to Bath when she was really little. They were a very like well-connected middle-class family. Her father actually managed a china shop that was owned by the Wedgwoods. So we could actually do a six degrees of Elizabeth Gaskell here, which would also lead you to Harriet Beecher Stowe. So we could really get a lot of guys. Take a here. shot. Yeah, take a shot. <laughs> in 1787, Anne married William Radcliffe. Now, Will was an Oxford Law graduate, and he was the owner and editor of the English Chronicle. He worked really late into the night and to pass the time and began writing. And he was super encouraging of this endeavor, and he would actually even ask her to read passages from her books, like when he got home. Her first book was a romance that was set in the Scottish Highlands and it was published to moderate success in 1789, but it was her third book, The Romance of the Forest, that was her first big ass hit. She then received 500 pounds for her copyright for The Mysteries of Udolpho and 800 for The Italian. So again, massive success, a lot of money. She's right up there with our dear friend Francis Burney. Making that she coin. Was rich. Making that coin. Anne took that money and she went traveling with her husband and she was all about travel. And this is very evident in her writing. In fact, Ellen Moyers calls Radcliffe's heroines the traveling woman or the traveling heroine. And this is from her wonderful book, Literary Women. For Mrs. Radcliffe, the Gothic novel was a device to send maidens on distant and exciting journeys without offending the proprieties. In the power of villains, her heroines are faced to do what they could never do alone. Scurry up mountains, spy out exotic vistas, penetrate bandit-infested forests. Her heroines could enjoy all the adventures that masculine heroes had long experienced far from home in fiction. So there is a lot going on in Radcliffe's fiction. Like you got the travel writing, you got adventure writing, you have elements of horror And you have these like long, poetical musings. She's like a poet at heart, really. So there's just a lot happening in this book, which I think is why it's so hard for a modern reader to digest. So Hannah, will you just like read us a quote from Udolpho, just so people can kind of like get a sense of what I'm talking about? I've, I've highlighted one here for you. Well, I hope I can do it justice. Please, Uh, I'm super snotty today, so let the people hear your voice. (laughs) The deepest shade of twilight
0: did not send him from his favourite plane tree. He loved the soothing hour when the last tints of light die away, when the stars, one by one, tremble through the ether and are reflected on the dark mirror of the waters. That hour, which, of all others inspires the mind with pensive tenderness and often elevates it to sublime contemplation when the moon shed her soft rays among the foliage he still lingered and his pastoral supper of cream and fruits was often spread beneath it then on the stillness of night came the song of the nightingale breathing sweetness and awakening melancholy
1: it's like beautiful that's lovely stuff i don't know what's going on but it's pretty it's nice, maybe. I don't, know, I don't know if that's for me. I think that you, no matter how you feel about it, you'd really, like, drown in hundreds of pages of that, right? Like, it's just, it's it's a little too much, but... It's therapy, Yeah, but it's there's some really lovely bits and pieces in there that I'm like, okay, I'm jealous of that. I don't put together sentences that way. So... I have had trouble getting through Udolpho in the past because of all of this lovely syrupy prose but can I just say that I recently read a comic adaptation and that really helped me like come around to it this time because when you strip away all of that prose you're just left with all of the basic plot points right and so it's mm-hmm. easy to see just all of these female issues that Radcliffe is trying to highlight, like, for example, property rights. Udolpho like all about property, <laughs> and what other writer talks about property quite a bit?
0: Jane Austen. Oh yes. <laughs> I I do think that though, like, um, I think people dismiss almost like pared down or basic adaptations of things, but I think they can be mm-hmm. really valuable just in getting like a sense of what the plot is so that you can focus your attention not on trying to figure out what's on what's going on but like what's being said or what the subtext is yes which is I think we said with the north and south read along where by kind of leaning into that pride and prejudice storyline Mm -hmm. it makes it easier because it's such a classic story so you know you kind of know where it's going and the important thing isn't that she's reinventing romance or you know, like reinventing the wheel, you, you're you then focused on all of the political stuff. Mm-hmm. And so with Udolpho, if it's got that like kind of denser writing, if you kind of know what's happening and you know it well and you know what the beats are, then it's almost like a string in the dark, right? You're like yeah. holding on to it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely become a lot more palatable for me, I think at this point, because I'm just like, oh, I see where this is going. I see what she's trying to do here. And... Again, it's all about property and, like, money and men trying to, like, maintain their rights over women's money, property, and bodies. A lot of that. Mm. um, And it's very – I don't know if this is her intention because we don't know what's going on with Anne. But it is very feminist. Another writer that was enormously popular at the same time as Radcliffe was Mary Wollstonecraft. In fact, Wollstonecraft was a huge fan of Radcliffe's work. And while we don't know if Anne felt the same way about Mary, um, we do know that they seem to be writing about the same ideas. Um, and here's actually a quote that I really liked from Dr. Claire Knowles on the rise of like modern-day feminism and like the female gothic. Hannah, again, I'm snotty. Why don't you read it? Wollstonecraft aimed her famous feminist
0: treatise treatise
1: treatise I I can't say that yeah that's an American (laughs) treatise you can say if you want to just say Wollstonecraft Wollstonecraft aimed aimed her
0: famous feminist treatise (laughs) vindication of the rights of women squarely at the same predominantly middle class women who read Radcliffe's gothic fiction and there are a number of similarities between the philosophies espoused by the two writers Wollstonecraft believed that middle-class women had been encouraged to be weak artificial beings by a society that discouraged female intellectual endeavour and bodily strength and encouraged the cultivation of emotional responsivity or sensibility at the expense of reason. In her Vindication of the Rights of Women, Wollstonecraft suggests that women ought to cultivate their rationality in order to be more productive members of society. Radcliffe's fiction reflects a similar belief in the importance of female rationality. Novels such as The Mysteries of Udolpho reflect Radcliffe's belief that the imagination has powers that can potentially be very useful for young women. However, like Wollstonecraft, Radcliffe believes that this imagination needs to be tempered by reason and by rational thought in order to be most effective. The tempering of powers of imagination and sensibility by rationality is at the heart of Radcliffe's terror gothic fiction, where the supposedly supernatural phenomena encountered by her heroines turns out to
1: have perfectly rational and earthly explanations. So that is a big thing with Anne Radcliffe, and I know we've mentioned it on this show before, but she really did stand apart from other gothic novelists because all of her supernatural elements were explained. So here in Northanger, we have Austin adapting Radcliffe's technique, right? And I do just want to leave you with that thought as we jump into our interview for today.
0: So today's interview is with one of my favorite guests from last season, and maybe... The entire show, actually. Oh wow! Helena Kelly. Helena is the author of Jane Austen: The Secret Radical, and she appeared on season three, episode sixteen, in part one of our Mansfield Park read-along. And I am so, so, so glad that she came back on the show, and that you got a chance to talk to her this time, Lauren.
1: It's funny. I've been asking people, like, yeah. you know, just out of curiosity, have you taught Northanger
2: Abbey? And people are like, no. <laughs> really hard to teach and of course there's always the problem like when do you teach it mm-hmm. um, so I did um, uh, I did a course I spent about a decade in fact um, teaching a course to American visiting students um, in mm-hmm. Bath and um, we did all of Austin's novels like the whole it was, it was all Austin for like the whole the whole semester mm-hmm. um, and so we did do everything but I was like do I do Northanger Abbey at the beginning when it was mm-hmm. written do I do it at the end when it was published? And I to the conclusion that actually you know, doing, it, doing it before persuasion, right before mm-hmm. persuasion, really doesn't serve it very well um, right. because it, it doesn't, you know, yes, they're both set and off, and that's really all they have in common. Um, mm. And it's it, it sort of, it, it really it, it really doesn't stand the comparison very well because it is, I think, So obviously a book that she had started kind of very very early on her career. So I tended I tended to teach it with I ended up teaching it with the juvenilia in the end. Okay. Um, Although it took me kind of quite a long time to to decide to do that because it's very it's really difficult to pick an ideal position for it. It's quite I Mm -hmm. think in a lot of ways it's a real kind of outlier. Um, among her novels. And that's partly partly because of the, the, the pre-publication history I, I suppose is is so complicated and right. so kind of choppy um, in comparison to all, to all the other ones um, that it's you know, had a had a very fraught road to publication. <laughs>
1: right. And then it's I believe you said this in your book it does feel like you're trespassing too
2: when well, you read I mean, it as well. Like, She's she sort of so, so far as we know I mean it, it, we're there's a a little bit of uncertainty over whether the Susan that was accepted for publication in 1803 and then never gets published by by that publisher and the Miss Catherine that she's referring to in um, just not long before she dies, whether they are both Northanger Abbey and whether this is all basically the same book or versions of the same book. I think they they probably are, but we're not 100% certain on that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, the assuming Miss Catherine is Northanger Abbey, like the last thing she says about it is that mm, I'm gonna put it back on the shelf and I'm not sure it's gonna come off the shelf again fundamentally that she was she was really kind of you know, certainly by you know, by the end of her life she's feeling really not all that positive about it not feeling that it's it's a novel that really works anymore. And she has that you know she has that advertisement to the reader where she's like, Mate, I just like it's been such a long time since yeah. I wrote this book that I, I just don't think you're going to get it. You're not going to get all these like wonderful, clever jokes I put in. And <laughs> it, it's just, like, it's just not going to, it's not going to function in in the way that it would have, you know, it would have functioned 13, 15 years ago. Um right. And it's, um yeah, I find it. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I suppose there is that, there's that sort of, you know, that it was very much, you know, it's, it's, it's a false start in her writing career, right? You know, it gets gets accepted for publication and then never appears and never appears and never appears. Um, and it was clearly one that I think she felt very kind of disappointed with and very kind of... It, 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 I, I think she had a lot of negative feelings associated with it. Right. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, she she didn't prepare it for publication later on. You know, it's, mm. it's not like persuasion. It's not like she was like, okay, well... I think I'm kind of done. I'll right. write the end and I won't kind of, you know, put it up on the shelf or I'll leave it, I'll leave it here on the desk. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, mean, both us, I, suppose it, I suppose it slightly goes for persuasion as well. I mean, she, she didn't send that to the publishers herself. They're both, you know, they both go through after she's dead, they're, you know, they're shepherded through by, by Henry and Cassandra, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, they don't have the final authorial edit and they don't, they don't actually have you know, it's not—it's not her seal of approval on them fundamentally. Right. Um, and I think it matters less with persuasion, although there's some there's some bits in that that don't actually. You know, the the plot doesn't make total sense at the end mm-hmm. in persuasion. Um, but with with North Arabia, I suppose it's just like it's not—it's not fundamentally her best work. Right. Um, you know, there's there's fun stuff in it and there's interesting stuff in it, but. It, you know, it never got that opportunity to kind of meet with the audience that she she intended for it and i think that's i think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons it, it's quite a it's quite a difficult one i don't think many people love it it's a sort of yeah it's a sort of also ran it, it's very much kind of second tier i i, I think for, for most people now as well as what i've what i've tended to find um with um, with students is that you know, some of them quite like it, and one or two of them have a soft spot for Henry Tilney because they've clearly not encountered many mansplainers in their life yet.
1: Um, <laughs> and, oh God, I can't stand him. It's probably J.J. Field's fault.
2: Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find him very. He makes me. He. I, I think. I think it's partly uh, kind of uh, having spent so long in academia, on kind of on, on the fringes <laughs> of academia, I suppose. Like he is every man who interrupts you when you're giving a conference paper. <laughs> Um, it's just you know it's not it's not that it's it's not that what he says is rude. It's just that he genuinely thinks you're an idiot. I am one of those readers who is a bit twitchy about quite a few of the the kind of supposed romances. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the kind of you know happy endings uh, are are not I think always that happy. Um, but and I mean there are there are ones I feel worse about than this. Sure. But, yeah. But I don't you know it's not. It's not Lizzie and Darcy, and it's not Ann and Wentworth. You know, they're not. Mm-hmm. This is not a kind of adult equal relationship um, right. where they're going to kind of have a free exchange of ideas, and they're going to be they're going to be okay about disagreeing with each other, and they'll you know, they can they can respect what the other person thinks, and they. You know, they're, they 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 want they want to listen to their spouse, and they want that to be a kind of source of, of kind of wisdom and, and extra input for them, and that's not what you're going to get with 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 Catherine and Henry. It's a it's a much more kind of yeah, he he's he's controlling, and you know he controls the way that she uses. Beach, and he, you know, he refuses yeah. to accept that she doesn't keep a diary. And it's, it's all, and it you know, maybe it's just him flirting and not quite getting it right, and, and right. maybe that's, <laughs> you
1: like know, what we've maybe, been wondering, like, is he just like a nervous young man who yeah, he just, just, he can't just can't just shut
2: up? A bit at flirting fundamentally, or, or you know, but, but but we're told that he kind of, you know, he only starts thinking about her seriously because he realizes that she's fallen for him, and it's all, it's all very. And i i su- you know, i suppose as well, if his father you know mistakenly thinking that she's an heiress is kind of pressurizing him, mm-hmm. maybe he maybe maybe it's meant to put her off like yeah. maybe you know, there maybe there's kind of a a kind of maelstrom of conflicting emotions for him as well um but yeah he's it's very it is it is very difficult to kind of put your finger on him as a yeah, as a he's, character, he's work out kind of where tough. he's coming from. Or whether in fact he's got kind of, you know, one one comment is one thing and another is another and another is something else that mm-hmm. it's yeah. He's um, I think that especially
1: feels very first drafty to me.
2: Yes. Yes. And I mean and I think I think that, fundamentally, yeah. you know, this was a book that she was writing in her early twenties. Well uh, I suppose it's also possible that he's a um He's a portrait of her brother Henry. I mean, which mm-hmm. is a is is a kind of. I, I'm sure I've seen that suggestion floated somewhere, but I don't know quite where. Quite I everywhere. have too. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. The the and so that kind of brotherly brotherly cheesiness, um, mm-hmm. you know, is 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 coming from a slightly different place, and he's sort of, you know, that that there's a you know, the reason. The reason that it feels like he's an older brother telling off his tiresome younger sibling most of the time is because that that is actually the character that she's she's writing about. Um, yeah, but, uh, I, I think so. I think that, that's yeah. very
1: possible. Yeah, he's, he's
2: he's he was very fond of Henry, um, mm-hmm. but found him tiresome sometimes. Um, <laughs> there's this there's this great bit where she says she says uh, it's like oh you know, Henry has basically let so many people. Into the secret of me being like the the um, the author of Pride and Prejudice, that I might as well just like tell everyone now because he's right. like basically <laughs> everyone knows because he's been oh it's a great secret. Um, <laughs> the, um,
1: <laughs> Henry can't keep his mouth shut.
2: <laughs> I think there's also this
1: thing with Northanger Abbey that like you're like comp- like you're, there's a lot of things for the reader. That could distract the reader. Like I feel like there's a lot of things competing for your attention yes. because you have Austin also dropping like all of these references to everything else.
2: Yeah, I mean it's very. I mean I think I, I think this is the reason why why she was like, "Look, you're just not gonna like it." it, it, it essentially, the text as I intended it to be read can't be read anymore. And if she has this, right, <laughs> she has this bit where she talks about how, um, you know. Manners and, and books have kind of changed completely in the last 13 years. And she, you know, the, the whole, the, the, the text does this really, um, especially as it get in, gets into the kind of second, second part, is doing this really complicated kind of interplay with the mysteries of Udolpho. That she's, um, there are, you know, character names, there are even scenes that take place once they're at Northanger Abbey that are, are really clearly like taken out of Radcliffe's novel. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that I think readers originally would have got all of those and be like, ho-ho, oh, this is hilarious. It was right. such a popular novel at the end of the 18th century that, you know, Austin could expect that everyone would know it and would know it really well um, and are going to get all the you know get, get things at the at, at the level of kind of like scene parodies right mm. um but that by the time you're sort of a decade and a half down the line you just you 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 no one had that level of familiarity with it anymore it wasn't it wasn't people had stopped reading it completely but it was not the hot novel of the day right it, and right. the gothic had kind of you know it had kind of slipped down and no one was no one was as excited by it as they'd been in the 1790s And so you know all these, all these really actually quite carefully crafted parallels and like things that she's she's built up, just kind of go and people don't get them. So you know, so um, one of the um, one of the things I I talk about in the the book when I'm discussing Northanger Abbey, is to say that you 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 find quite a lot of um, of kind of critical analyses of the novel like oh well and then Catherine starts reading gothic novels and she reads so many of them that basically it drives her you know sort of drives her loopy and she she gets mm-hmm. you know, she thinks that everyone is evil and blah, blah blah and the thing is that she, she doesn't even read all of the of Rodolfo, because mm-hmm. actually if she did she would realize that you know when Henry does this big long spiel about how the housekeeper Dorothy will show her to this room this will happen and this will happen like that's all from like the second half of the novel but mm-hmm. she hasn't got there so she doesn't henry's henry's trying to kind of make this shared joke with her about this book that he now assumes she must have finished reading um and she hasn't finished reading it because she only gets sort of, you know just over halfway through
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so she knows the whole the whole kind of second half of the book. Which is actually quite different. It moves to a moves to a different place. Um, you know, introduces new characters. One of them called Henry, um, mm-hmm. uh, and a housekeeper called like Dorothy, and, and there's there, so there's all this stuff that actually she she ought to be getting, and that the reader would have been Austin would have been expecting the readers to get, but that actually, certainly to us, I think you know even even in sort of eighteen seventeen eighteen eighteen, was just was just getting missed that this whole yeah. you know, this 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 very very carefully crafted kind of intertext um you know intertextual play that she's set up between the two texts no one actually no one got it um, essentially I think it's um, and uh and in the whole but, but the whole point of and they, it kind of undermines the whole point of what Austen's trying to do I think as well because mm-hmm. what what she's actually criticising in Northanger Abbey I think is not novel reading, it's reading books wrong and not paying attention to what the author actually wants you to get out of them. You have an awful lot of kind of, there are a lot of um, incidents in Northanger Abbey where it's quite clear that characters haven't been reading books properly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, John Thorpe, and he's like, oh, well, you know, Camilla was really rubbish. It was all about, like, a seesaw and, like, some old man learning Latin. (coughs) And, those things do actually happen in the novel, in in, in in the novel Camilla, but they happen like halfway through the first volume. And so if you've just like flicked through the first one and then, you know, tossed it aside and decided you didn't want to read it, you've not you, you, you can't actually say that you've read the novel in any kind of meaningful sense. And so Catherine hasn't actually read the Mrs. of Rudolfo in any meaningful sense because the whole conclusion of the novel is doing is showing that her Suspicions were completely wrong, and showing how she like essentially everything she's thought up to that point was incorrect, and right. you know her evil uncle is quite a lot less evil than she's thought. Um, uh, and so you know she would she she only makes the mistakes about Henry's dad because she hasn't finished reading reading her 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 text, you because she's not read mm-hmm. the uh, you know the novel that she's reading all the way through and kind of properly absorbed what it's what it's trying to tell her. She she kind of she she misunderstands the message of it fundamentally. It's this kind of misunderstanding of what the the, the Gothic is doing because there's mm-hmm. I mean, arguably there's kind of you know, there's there's your standard gothic works, you know, Castle of Otranto, giant bits of armour drop out of the sky. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, your kind of sexy gothic porn. So Matthew (laughs) Lewis is a monk. Um, It's all very rapey, very like quite disturbing. But female also gothic, a little bit later in the 18th century, is actually really different, I think. Um, And I, you know, I wouldn't be alone in thinking that. That it's very much more about your kind of anxieties about women's bodily safety, about their kind of autonomy. there's these amazing fantasies of like inheriting land and wealth as women, like not not by marriage, they mm-hmm. inherit them themselves. And actually, all the stuff that appears to be supernatural isn't supernatural. It's it's, you know, it's what's called what's um, what's called explained Gothic. So mm-hmm. it isn't ghosts. It's smugglers. Um, you know, there you know there isn't there isn't kind of a you know dead nun wandering around. It's this. Mad woman who actually happens to be your auntie as well. Um, you know, all, there, there is always, in fact, a rational explanation for what's been what's been going on, and it's not, you know, it's not ghosts and devils and kind of, you know, it's it's always it's always kind of human emotions and human motivations. Um, and I mean, a, there, there there there's some really kind of fantastic feminist um, interpretations of what Radcliffe and um, Charlotte Smith, as well, and her her kind of gothic novels are are actually doing. And it's a much more, it's much more kind of nuanced and interesting, I think, as well. But Catherine, Catherine doesn't ever get to that bit. She kind of stays stuck halfway through in the like, oh, this is really exciting, and there, you know, there's something terrible behind the black veil, <laughs> and that actually she never, she, she, she doesn't, she, she has to find out for herself that actually the threat to her is to her physical safety. And also, you know, two men wanting her, in fact, imaginary fortune. But you know, right. the you know, the heroine of um, of Dolpho, but does have money, and it's that you know it's that that her 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 evil uncle wants. He doesn't actually want to kill her, or you know, have her raped by brigands or anything. He wants all he wants is her money, and you know, he he's not too particular about how he gets that. Um, but yeah, and so it's a very. Austin is. She's she, she's she's attempting at least to do something very very complicated. You know, she's kind of mm-hmm. importing this whole kind of gothic fantasy feminist um, genre into a a very kind of naturalistic um, almost kind of hyper naturalistic story where nothing very much happens, and kind of the most exciting thing is that she gets sent off in the coach by herself, um, and the you know, People get interrupted and in going for walks, um, but you know, theres is there there is a lot in there where, where Catherine you know Catherine is subject to kind of very modified physical threat, but it is still there to emotional blackmail from her brother and from Isabella Thorpe. You know, there are there are pressures on her, and they're the same pressures that actually the the, the female authored Gothic novel tends to be exploring. Um, but she doesn't sort of she doesn't realise, I guess, that these these sort of older female authors have been trying to warn her, um, you know, and it, that that maybe maybe it's that 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 uh, you, know. you know, the patriarchal types are not so keen on on the women reading, as as the you know it's not it's not the ghosts that they worry about; it's the the encouragement to question patriarchal power structures, which which actually you know Radcliffe does do very much. Um, in, in her work and I mean Austen does as well but, um,
1: yeah do you think it's I feel like it's billed as a parody of gothic novel but I don't it think it is
2: I, I, I really it's like don't think homage. it
1: is like an homage
2: yeah, but yeah. No, absolutely I mean the first the, the, one of the most famous passages in it is, is the, um, the the kind of page and a half that's called that's kind of known as the defense of the novel where um, and the, 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 the narrative voice in, in Northanger Abbey is, is, is not as kind of uh, it's much more obtrusive than it is in, in most of Austin's novels. But she like she goes she goes off on a right one. She's like, Right, okay, you know what? If I like normally novel writers are like really like sarcastic about their heroines reading novels, but I'm not gonna do that and I'm not gonna be that because, you know, we are you know, we are an injured body. We should you know, we should support each other. Um, and then she she writes this entire long, like amazing, rolling, like call to arms. So, like, a sisterhood of writers and all the, all the novelists she mentions in it are women. Um, and they're really kind of, you know, it's, it's really like, they're like, we are, we are fantastic. We are, we are creating something really, really good. And let's not be ashamed of what we're doing. And let's not be ashamed of, like, reading each other's work because we're pretty fantastic. And, you know, ignore the critics because they're all men anyway. But, you know, this is, this is a really kind of serious and meaningful and pleasurable branch of literature and you know that that's something that's something that matters. And I can't see how how or why she would be suddenly switching from that to parodying Radcliffe. Right. You know, it, it just it doesn't seem to make sense that having had this passage that is all like, Yay, sisters, let's you know, let's write novels together she would then in fact do exactly what she's just said she's not going to do, which is kind of like, you know, poke fun and belittle and, you know, talk demeaningly about the work of like a sister author, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think to see it, I think to read it as a gothic parody is, is a misunderstanding of, of what she's trying to do. I don't know that she necessarily did it terribly successfully. Mm-hmm. And I think this, you know, this very long gap between composition and it actually reaching any audience at all, has really kind of um, obscured a lot of what she was trying to do. I think she might have, you know, it it might have come across more obviously if it had come out in 1803. I just think how different Mm. her career would have been as well, though. Um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would have, like, because it's such a a much more obviously kind of, if people had got it, It, it's so much obviously more feminist, more political Mm -hmm. than a lot of people would have you believe she is. But, you know, it's... it is there, and I, I don't think you know. I don't think there's any two ways about, you know. There's the this this belief, this 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 kind of wanting to believe that she's tearing down other women writers is, I think, very much that that kind of this is this is what men think women do to each other, and this is what men encourage mm-hmm. women to do to each other, and, and that actually, she she doesn't do it. It's she's not you know. She's not in competition with with other women. She has much more kind of meaningful right. things to say to them. Um, and even if you know Bronte, Charlotte Bronte famously is like, "I just don't get um <laughs> You know, she that that's because again, she wasn't kind of she wasn't she she'd fallen for the the hype about what Austen is doing, rather than actually yeah. kind of sitting down and reading and reading the books, um, kind of in there, in with the right frame of mind, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, but, you know, you couldn't tell Charlotte anything.
2: You, no, no, she was not a she was not a, a, a <laughs> flexible flexible woman. No, <laughs> um, no, and I mean, I suppose maybe it's another the, the, the kind of Radcliffe, um, the, the, the play with Radcliffe, is one of the reasons maybe why Henry Tilney is such a kind of difficult hero because one of the things that that Radcliffe's Gothic is very very obviously lacking in is, is hero figures. You know, Emily doesn't actually. Rescued, she sort of ends up having to rescue herself, and there, you know there are various men who kind of drip around being in love with her, but none of them are the, the least little bit of use um, you know she doesn't she doesn't get rescued the guy she 's in love with just like, goes off to Paris and like drinks a lot and gets in debt and like has an affair with someone else um, you know he's not he 's not there bravely trying to rescue her from from the threats that surround her um, so it's sort of you know even even while it embraces. Some kind of outlandish plot tropes, and very much kind of embraces the idea that there are, you know, evil baddies out to get you. It it it's it's challenging the idea that anyone is coming to save you. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's not that's not available to Emily. Really, it's not going to happen. She's got to she's got to kind of stop fainting and start start doing. And mm-hmm. some um, and uh, you know, maybe maybe that's a hopefully, I always, I always hope that Catherine does eventually find the time to kind of sit down and, and finish uh, reading uh, um, The Mistress of Udolfo. As a, you know, as she as she grows into kind of mature womanhood, she will sit down and she will read it and she will, you know, she, she will learn the lessons that I think Radcliffe is trying to, is trying to kind of smuggle into her, her readership, which is mm-hmm. about, you know, that there there are threats out there and you know, they're not, they're not ghosts and, and ghoulies, they are they are kind of they're more domestic um mm-hmm. and you know there's there's stuff that you need to defend yourself against um even you know even in your intimate relationships, even in your family circle um and that you need to kind of yeah you need to you need to be be on your guard against um and I think that's one of that's one of the things I suppose that that austin kind of not that she says it in the defense of the novel, but I think that's what she's she's kind of Putting in there that they they are all writing about women's lives and you know what what that what happens in them as being of of kind of meaning and you know it's quite it's quite a radical it's quite a radical thing i think um still even even now to have to have novels that are centered purely on on women and that have their their kind of interests and their narrative at heart it's it can be it can be quite hard even now to kind of find that many of them um, yeah
1: and i like the defense of it too it's reminding me a lot too of like the conversation that's going on right now between female filmmakers yeah supporting each other and yeah, saying yeah and, you actually know, you know like no i'm not here to tear down someone's you know rom-com. I know that you think that that might be a lower form of film, but I do not. And
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. You know, that it's, yeah. it, you know, we have, we, we haven't, well, that's it's kind of what you know, we have, we, we have the, you know, the critics are moaning at us enough while praising some kind of rubbishy derivative thing that some bloke has done. Um, right. But you know what, we have to, essentially we have to ignore them and we have to you know, create stuff that our readers enjoy. And also mm-hmm. that our, that, that is, that is for them, and that is good for them as well. In, in sort of, you know, that that kind of you know pleasure and pleasure and utility thing, I think mm-hmm. is very much is very much at the heart of what, what Radcliffe and Anne Austin are, are, are trying to do. Um, that they're you know they're 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 trying to to educate their readers as well as to to kind of you know give them fun. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: Well, see. Now that, that is what I do like about Northanger Abbey. It's quite. I think it's also quite sophisticated too in that whole like Catherine learning to you know trust her instincts and not take things at face value, yeah, but also play with Udolpho.
2: There are there are a lot of readings as as well. Um, I mean, the, so there's this whole there's whole kind of like uh, subgroup of male critics who are like, oh yes, well you know what, Austen novels them, basically because you know because Austen was a good woman and she was like, oh yes. Don't get too uppity because you'll be shamed and that will be the right thing. So, like, Marianne has to be shamed and Emma has mm-hmm. to be shamed and, like, Catherine has to be shamed by, by their, you know, significant men and that's you know, they, they need to be controlled and corralled and the kind of wilder excesses of them attempting to gain power or influence people or, you know, take control of their own sexual destiny or, or kind of question the patriarchy or whatever. All of those things have to be, have to be kind of, you know, pulled back into true and kind of, you know, made, made right and womanly. But I really don't think that's what happened. Like, I, because Catherine, you know, the, having been told off by Henry and sucked out of the house by General Tilney, and you know, she goes home and she's like, actually, now that I have more information, I do think that General Tilney is a bad man. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't actually think I mean, okay, I was going a bit over the top by thinking he might have murdered his wife, but fundamentally, he is not a, a man whose morals I can approve of. You know, he was trying to get my supposed fortune for his son, and why should I respect that? That's not that's not admirable, and that's not something to look up to. That um, that in fact she doesn't internalise that critical voice that, that Henry. Henry kind of introduces her to she she does maybe 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 their marriage will be okay because she does have that little she has that little hard nub of thinking that actually. What she she doesn't need to abandon everything that she's thought and that, you know, maybe maybe she was right and that maybe her, you know, her opinions and Henry's are not always going to, you know, completely uh, completely agree with each other um yeah and i think it's you know you need to you need to have that that sense of individual independent thought otherwise yeah. it is you know and i think if she if she didn't have that it would very much be a you know she's she's scolded into into rightness and into kind of you know mm-hmm. correct correct docile behavior but she she actually doesn't she she comes back out of it again. I think mm-hmm. a, she only she only kind of retreats temporarily, doesn't she? And then she yeah. you know, she does she does um, re-emerge into that, that that little critical critical murmuring, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, which I, I, I guess is the the beginnings of feminism.
0: And we are back. Okay, so quote of the episode has to go to Helena with ignore the critics. They're all men anyway. Mm-hmm. That should be a t-shirt. That yeah. should be a shirt. That's
1: fine. Shouldn't it? I'm up, I'm it's up like, it's that. It's a long
0: shirt. It could be a patch
1: mm. or like oh, a yeah. neck
0: tattoo, but a pa- maybe a patch. How about yeah. a patch? Yeah, I'm a not patch, super yeah. down with a neck tattoo
1: for me. We personally. can all get one. We
0: can all get one. <laughs> <laughs> And then I do also want to say that, like, it's one of those weird, wobbly time Doctor Who moments. But I really loved the chat at the start of the interview just about the book getting shelved. You know, Austin was worried that it had dated badly. And here we are 200 years later. Like, what's the joke, Austin? We don't get it. Totally. (laughs) With all of her books. Maybe Northanger Abbey more than the others, but like. Little yeah. did she know. It's just interesting,
1: yeah. Um, now, what did you think of Helena's point about Catherine not finishing The Mysteries of Udolpho?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. agree. Because she's not once, like, described as reading again, basically from the point she meets with Eleanor at the pump room. She's like, hey, Eleanor, you go into the ball? Eleanor's like, yeah, Henry's going too. And then she accidentally admits that she fancies him. And then I think it even says, like, a line, like, she had no time to read or something like that because she was, like, busy thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But that's, like, the last time. Yeah. I don't think she reads in the rest of the book. So, yeah, I'm on board with that theory. And, you know, the carriage scene as well. How does she not yeah. recognise it? Totally. And it's, it's like the Blaise Castle thing. Like, yeah. why would you have the Blaise Castle joke about someone not knowing the truth of a situation and Catherine kind of going along with their conversation? Mm-hmm. if Because this is a this is a book where, like... Uh, children learn through repetition right Right. as as adults repetition is humor and Catherine has to be told everything twice and a lot of the jokes that are in the book happen twice i just think there's this like repetition like theme going through and Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff is like foreshadowed and i think yeah the blaze castle thing is kind of pointing at moments like this
1: yeah Um, I totally agree I don't think she's read it either or has if she has she just has like the worst reading comprehension ever plot is like the basic thing like most people can
0: take plot away from something right right everyone that's read Austin can take away the basic plot of boy meets girl girl likes boy but the nuance is the thing Catherine is just like I don't know what happened
1: yeah I mean and here is a quote literally from Mysteries of Udolpho so like If Catherine had read this quote, I feel like she would have got it. Hannah, do you want to read it or should I read it?
0: You should read it.
1: Okay. A well informed mind is the best security against the contagion of folly or vice. The vacant mind is ever on watch for relief and ready to plunge into error to escape from the languor of idleness. Store it with ideas, teach it with the pleasure of thinking and the temptations of the world without will be counteracted by the gratifications derived from the world within. I mean, a well-informed mind is the best security against the contagion of folly and vice. <laughs> I feel like Catherine would get that, right? <laughs> yeah, you think so. I. This quote also sounds like it could be from Northanger Abbey, honestly, um, or the essential lesson that Austen is trying to get across in this book. Um, I know in the Facebook group, I did say that I always take a step back when Northanger Abbey is billed as a parody or satire. And I did, you know, kind of question that in the interview as well. I'm not saying that this doesn't, like, contain satiric elements, but I think my question is, or what I think we need need to take a look at is, like, what Jane Austen is skewering here? Because I don't think she's, you know, taking a jab at Radcliffe or, like, the basic ideas. In mysteries of udolpho
0: i just think it's one of those you have to be because this is what i said in the facebook group like in response i think it like it is a joke the joke isn't on radcliffe the joke yeah. is laughing with radcliffe you yes. have to understand radcliffe to get the joke you have to understand that blaze castle is a folly to get the joke right so it's not like radcliffe is wrong and radcliffe is bad and so again like it's not not to be contrary I do think it's a parody. I don't necessarily think that parody is always a bad thing.
1: No, or like I don't. A thing. I think that's the easy reading and that's the one I've seen time and time again of Northanger Abbey like oh Jane Austen is laughing at other female writers or she's laughing yeah. at Radcliffe and I'm like she's laughing like at people who don't fully comprehend things or don't read the book. They you know like but it's so interesting
0: isn't it because when you talk about stuff like this then sometimes it's like the tendency or the and I, I do it that you can you're you can be tempted to then like overcorrect and say oh well then it's not this thing at all
3: mm-hmm. and then
0: it's like actually it's more complicated and it isn't like you know like it's yeah. very it's very hard to have a reading where it's like this exact thing that I'm saying is like 100% right and there's no like and like that's why it's so cool to have like the read-alongs and to discuss everything and for someone to like say oh this thing and someone say but have you considered that and yeah I think there was something that you said too I
1: I think in the first episode could have been last week but um I just say so much good shit you say so many things Hannah (laughs) to me all day long (laughs) (laughs) um but you said that like everyone in this book is just like Talking, 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 but no one's really saying anything. And Mm -hmm. there is a lot of talk about Udolpho and about the sensational elements of the book, like the black veil. Like you keep hearing people saying, Ooh, the black veil, the black veil. But no one's really saying anything real about the story. They're not even talking about like what is actually under the black veil, which is like, a wax figure it's nothing it's not a ghost it's not scary so we're not talking about the actual thing we're just dancing around it and i think that's one of the things that austin is doing in this book as well right like
0: and that's how i feel about jane austen when she's reduced to being a romance writer right. honestly yes absolutely and people go oh mr darcy and that's their like hot take on pride and prejudice and i'm like cool <laughs> so let's dig into the chapters for a second mm-hmm. so chapters 17 to 24 said this last week last week great set chapters this week great set chapters great i guess it's a good book <laughs> so this time round just like catherine we find ourselves saying goodbye to a few of our favorite things who knows when we will next see our beloved bath our dear friend isabella or everyone's favorite fuckboy boy john thorpe just as Catherine and the Allens kind of agree they're going to extend their trip in Bath for a few more weeks. She's told by Eleanor Tilney that actually they are leaving town. The general has been disappointed, like some friends of his haven't turned up, it's unclear. He wants to make like a tree and that means that Eleanor and Henry have to go with him. While Catherine is gutted, she is hopeful this means their grotty brother will also have to leave, but worse luck, he's also staying behind Probably to flirt with Isabella some more. Right? Probably? Yeah. It sounds Maybe right. they're going to smash. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Cue another excellent, like one of my favorite chats between Catherine and Henry about love and lust. It's just like you said, Catherine's a girl. She needs to be told everything twice. They had a very similar conversation at the ball just a couple of chapters ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe now she'll listen to him <laughs> and kind of get the idea that something isn't right there. One can only help. So that's the bad news. The Tilneys are leaving. Boo. But yay. They want her to go with them to Northanger Abbey, which is a real abbey. Catherine is super excited. Not only is she going to go and stay in like a real ruined abbey, but she also gets to spend like a month with her number one crush. Yeah. Can you believe it? Can you comprehend? Great news. Excellent. Yes.
1: Taylor Swift should write a song about this chapter. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Bath boy. I'm down for it. Let's. Guys, let's all reach out to
0: Taylor today. Tweet it. If she can play a ginger cat, she can write this song. Absolutely. So the journey doesn't start off particularly well. She's a little overwhelmed by their father, the general's presence. But then he, you know, puts her in the carriage with Henry. Catherine's kind of sitting there. She can't help comparing him to the only other man she's gone for a ride with. True story. See what I did there? They don't actually have sex though. Don't worry, that wasn't innuendo. <laughs> um, when they get to Northanger, she's a little disappointed to find that the general is a man of improvements. Mm. So it's not quite the tumbling romantic ruin she was hoping for. But there is a mystery because beneath the layer of well proportioned and elegantly furnished rooms, there is the mystery of surrounding the death of Henry's mother the general's mm-hmm. coldness to her memory, and why he is so fond of taking early morning walks. Yeah, so weird. Her, She's just like... Her dad doesn't do that? that? My dad doesn't do it. Mr. Alan, Mr. Allen doesn't take his walks so early in the morning. That uh, Love that bit. It's pretty Don't funny. know why. It's not even that funny. Made me laugh. So Catherine begins an investigation, and because despite what Isabella says, she isn't sly. She admits to Henry that she thinks his dad might have murdered his mum.
1: She does. She does admit that. He
0: finds her skulking around in his dead mum's rooms and she's like, by the way, I think your dad did it. (laughs) (laughs) Done her in. They have a fight. You know, she's upset. It's it's an upset. That's where we leave her. But also, gothic mystery moments. There's a big old chest full of shopping lists. A great scene where she has a bad night's sleep great set of chapters all together 10 out of 10 would recommend chapters 17 (laughs) to 24
1: lauren loza what your best bits i agree actually just thinking about the chest real quick i'm pulling out my notebook the chest scene is so good i just like there's a hilarious moment with the chest too where she's also like i didn't learn my lesson from the chest i should have learned my lesson and i'm like yes catherine yeah, it's almost like you think the
0: chest has something interesting inside it and it's a real struggle and a faff to find out what it is. And in the light of day, you realize you're wrong and it makes you feel very embarrassed and uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Does that sound familiar? It does. All too familiar. Oh, my God. Okay, there are so many good things in my notes here. I am just going to mention a couple of quick things. Okay, first, taking it back to chapter 18. Isabella is super crafty in this chapter, isn't she? When she's like talking to Catherine about JT and proposals. And Mm -hmm. what I think is really great is that Catherine really thinks that Isabella isn't hearing her when she's saying, you know, I was never interested in your brother. I'm not like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to marry your brother. This is crazy. But really, she's not listening to Isabella, who is just like laying out all this groundwork for like how she's going to jilt James. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's amazing. That's the it's thor classic so move. Great move. That they both do it. Yes. And there's been a lot of talk, too, in the Facebook group of, like, is Isabella just, like, you know, is she manipulative? Or is she just sort of, like, yes. hapless and, like, an idiot? No. And does she get what she's even saying? Of course she isn't hapless. She is so calculating. <laughs> Super calculating. Great scene. Great scene. Where it's, like, Catherine is not paying attention and then in chapter 19, actual quote, Isabella seemed an altered creature. And I definitely yelled Jekyll and Hyde when I read that, taking it back to last week. But I also wrote, Catherine, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's good advice. Yeah.
0: Come on. So there is something about this scene where Isabella's character is almost entirely laid bare. It's almost like a vivisection, right? And they're like, yeah. here are the lungs. And Catherine's like, I don't see any lungs. Right. What's going on? I don't know. What, what organs <laughs> can I see? I've never done a vivisection. I've just seen them in films just to just to say I haven't done one.
1: <laughs> I don't know why. You're saying this for legal reasons,
0: correct? Yeah. Just for legal yeah. reasons. <laughs> are they, they must be illegal. Okay. Sure. Anyway, horror films. Um, So yeah, it's just interesting to me that like Catherine still cannot see Isabella's behaviour as intentional, you know, it's so blatant and there's this one line of reported dialogue that just always stands out to me and it's um, her dearest Catherine must excuse her and must sit quietly down again. And that just, it kills all goodness in Isabella for me because it's so cold. Mm -hmm. It's so controlling. It's like, don't you cause a scene, Catherine. Like, don't you embarrass me. Mm -hmm. And she's sat there, like, making love to Captain Tilney in public with Catherine sat next to her. And then Catherine has the strength in that moment to stand up and she just leaves her behind. Yeah, She's just like, I'm going to go. And she put, like... Because Isabella is kind of taking advantage of her. She doesn't give a shit about Catherine. No. In that moment. It's so cruel.
1: Chapter 20 of my annotated edition came with a banger of a footnote. I'm just like still thinking about this footnote. So (laughs) the scene that it's referencing is um, Catherine is at the Abbey. And she's super disappointed with all the like the modern updates. Including. She hates the window. Listen, I get it.
0: Do you remember it's like when I walked up to Chawton House and I was like, I mean, it's a nice house, but is it a great house? <laughs> so rude. It's
1: lovely. <laughs> it's really lovely.
0: But Hannah was just like as
1: big as I thought You it was. wanted it to be bigger. You're like,
0: this needs to be an estate. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking of like Chatsworth House. That's mm, that house mm. is massive. Yeah. That's the massive house of Chatsworth, that's what they call it. Right.
1: Chatsworth massive. You were like, Chawton, this is just this is this is nice. It's doable, yeah. though. I think a lot of yeah, people say doable. that about, like, Elizabeth Gaskell's house, which is really funny. Like, people go in and they go, yeah. I could live in this house. This is attainable. Oh, yeah.
0: you, I mean, I could live in <laughs> Elizabeth could live Gaskell's this. house. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That would be fine. I'd be fine with it. Attainable. It's nice. Um, it's pretty big. I don't think I'm going <laughs> to house that big. It's much bigger than my own real home. Um, yeah. She really hates those windows. And there's, like, this really long quote about those windows in the abbey and here's the quote hannah take it away
0: the windows to which she looked with peculiar dependence from having heard the general talk of his preserving them in their gothic form with reverential care were yet less what her fancy had portrayed to be sure the pointed arch was preserved the form of them was gothic They might be even casements, but every pane was so large, so clear, so light. To an imagination which had hoped for the smallest divisions and the heaviest stonework, for painted glass, dirt, and cobwebs, the difference was very distressing. All right,
1: and here is the footnote. The smallest divisions in painted glass describe a traditional stained glass window, its coloured panes set into a leaded grid. Austin may be using this report of form metafictionally for the formation of the chapters of Northanger Abbey. The form is gothic, but the fabrication is modern. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. I mean, you look so excited. I was so <laughs> you know, excited. i quite
0: big right now.
1: <laughs> I just love the form is gothic, but the fabrication is modern. And I think that's what I was trying to say last week, and I just didn't know how to verbalize it with Northanger Mm. Abbey, when I was talking about like, we have to have the kidnapping, that has to happen. We have to have our heroine lose her sense of agency, but we have to do it in a modern way. It's a gothic story, it's modernized. Yeah. That's it, that's it, that's all I've got, Hannah. (laughs) Because it was the best. Okay, so
0: this isn't as good. I feel like I've been set up. This isn't like a revelation. I just Mm. like it. Yeah. So I've been dying to talk about this one thing that Jane Austen does in this book, like four weeks. It's my favorite thing. It's this one like particular stylistic choice, like character development uh that she only does with this one character i don't think i've seen it in any of her other books and it's one of those lovely moments where because austin is like so clever with her humor it is hard to like catch her in the act of it Mm -hmm. at all times and every time the general gives one of his long speeches i'm just like howling with laughter honestly (laughs) second to john thorpe he's my favorite character he gives me such anxiety <laughs> I think I like these like high
1: energy tickets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cuz like I could like I could really spar with him, you know? Oh, cuz he makes me so nervous. He's one of those oh, people like you'd go out to eat with them and like you'd mention something like, "Oh, my chicken is like a little cold." But, you know, and then he'd just like start screaming at the server. And you're like, "Oh, yeah, oh, oh god." I mean, and that that sets me on edge. I just uh <laughs> <laughs> what your chicken's cold this is
0: un- anyway yeah, that's uh, not, it's not a chicken speech so I've got like a, just a couple of examples of what I mean mm-hmm. so this might not even be that funny I just really like it <laughs> so uh, the general has just uh, yeah I have to set this one up actually mm-hmm. so the general when uh, Eleanor Tilney is trying to invite Catherine to uh, to come to Northanger Abbey with them the general just kind of like walks in and is like oh what's up you about you know is it good news and then ellen's like well i was just about to ask her and he's like well proceed by all means i know how much your heart is in it my daughter miss morland he continued without leaving his daughter time to speak has been forming a very bold wish yeah so that's just the first time it happens Mm -hmm. and then it kind of gets going and then we get Another one is, what say you, Eleanor? Speak your opinion, for ladies can best tell the taste of ladies in regard to places as well as men. And then he gets half a page of dialogue describing what he's done with his property.
1: I mean, and then... Well, can I just interject and say, that goes back to your point that Austin is doing something with male dialogue, right? I mean, this is... Yes. This is it. This is like,
0: she's laying it out. And then this is just the last example. There are so many more. I just... I just want people to notice it i think it's such good characterization uh so this is like this is when austin's doing that thing so he's not talking in the third person she's describing it's like it's reported dialogue Mm -hmm. which should she prefer he was equally at her service which did his daughter think would most accord with her fair friend's wishes but he thought he could discern yes he certainly read in miss morland's eye a judicious desire of making use of the smiling weather Like, if Henry Tony is a mansplainer, he learned from the fucking
1: master. Yeah, he did. I really enjoyed reading um, those scenes with him at the Abbey because it's such a masterclass in, like, how do I even say this? Dick measuring? Like, oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, he's just... All of the stuff, and he's like, Mr. Allen doesn't like gardening. Oh, what a happy man indeed. Yeah, (laughs) It's just like, he's like... He's like, what a happy man, cretin, and she doesn't have to put the cretin in because you know what he's saying because she's developed his character so effectively. She really has, like
1: those little, just through Uh, what he says, just everything—the China, the like the dining Uh, room, everything—you're just like this guy. Has to conquer everything. That's his thing. He's competitive. He has to conquer it. He's just like, he's shallow. He's a mansplainer. The worst. And cut
0: this out if you want to. But Mm. this is my issue with James Gunn. Because... (laughs) I was (laughs) not expecting that. (laughs) People think Guardians of the Galaxy is a great film. Mm. Give me one line of dialogue in that film that could not have been said by a different character. You can like... That... That is pick and mix dialogue. I feel Anyone like... can say any of those lines or any of those jokes. Um, you can't do that with Austin because her dialogue sounds like the characters. John Thorpe is distinctly John Thorpe. Mm-hmm. Catherine is distinctly Catherine. Isabella is distinctly Isabella. Mm-hmm. She's not a lazy dialogue writer. No, it's fantastic. And the general is just chef's kiss. The wow. best, second to John Thorpe. <laughs> So, a couple of other things that I liked about this set of chapters, we mentioned them really briefly, is just any, like, all of the stuff with the chest and Mm -hmm. Catherine's, like, response to the chest and when she sees it. And I just, like, highlighted this because she starts talking to herself. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, just seeing her thought process about it was just so, I just loved it. Like, it's such a cute little set of chapters, the two before the um all of the stuff of the mum starts like the chest mystery the mini mystery is just really sweetly handled and i just i wrote next to it like "Catherine, you little weirdo (laughs) she's so excited by it and then she's all like oh i'm gonna stay up until the middle of the night and then i'm gonna read these papers and then she falls asleep (laughs) before midnight we've all done that she's tired man
1: she's so sleepy Mm i get it i've been there And that's it. That's all I got. Oh, that's it. That's all you get. Dry. Yeah. You're done. There was another moment that I thought was actually really funny. Actually, that was related to that. Let me see if I. This is when Catherine is actually reading through all of the receipts. And everything, and she finds. So she finds that, breeches ball. Great name. <laughs> do you know how these bulls work? I I. <laughs> exactly. Well, I do because of this footnote. So this footnote's like, a chalky clump for dry scrubbing and whitening stains on pants. And I was like, oh, okay. And then it continues and it says, in a subtle string of balls, in italics, (laughs) Catherine's career courses from tomboyish lover of baseballs to teenage longing for dance balls to confrontation with the signifier of the female labor. Oh,
0: yeah, the, I thought it was going to say the confrontation with balls. <laughs> and actually, this has reminded me because I was I was going to put it in the notes. But the when I was reading about the chest, I kept thinking about that time we were at um, Dove Cottage mm-hmm. and Polly showed us South like Southie's southeast chest with yeah. like a ball of camel spit in it. <laughs> And I was like, can you imagine if she'd broken into his house and she's like, what's in this mystery box? And she opened it. She's like, this shit is too weird. Too <laughs> weird. She it again. And it's like, don't unlock it. It's not worth it. Let it Back rock. away slowly. Just spoilers. For she like for picks the upcoming up she's season.
1: Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little treat coming up. <laughs> Next week, we've got the final set of chapters coming up. So uh, we will have more notes on balls and how to chess use them. and yeah, how to use those and uh we will be sharing all of our listener comments on our next episode
0: you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our facebook group by searching bonnets at dawn answering the questions agreeing to the rules <laughs> jumping through all the hoops mm-hmm. and then finally you can tell us about balls in the comments.
1: Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. All right. Songs Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye.